Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as hotspots in Ontario move into lockdown today, what does the red zone mean for Hamiltonians? Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to talk about that. What are the conditions of long-term care homes during the second wave, and has anything improved at all since these tragic events of the summer? And AstraZeneca says its late-stage trials show that its COVID-19 vaccine with Oxford University was up to 90% effective in preventing disease. The vaccine is one of several that Canada has pre-ordered. What could this mean for the fight against COVID-19? Well, we'll talk about it. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As other regions in Ontario head into lockdown in their gray zone, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about what's happening here in Hamilton and those uh, rising numbers. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good to be with you, Bill. Good morning. Good. When you uh, were talking with us last week sometime, you'd mentioned that uh, I guess that weekend you had gone shopping at, at Costco, one of the Costco locations there, and you talked about the, the long lineups. And uh, I, Driving around town this past weekend, uh, I saw the same thing, if not probably more intense than it was. Uh, I've talked to some folks in the retail sector, Mr. Mayor, and they said this this was like, you know, bin shopping. People were going out there and, and the stuff that we saw happening in March, you know, with loads and loads of toilet paper and paper towels and canned goods and mm. things like that, preparing for the worst. Uh, it, I don't want to call it panic buying necessarily, but this is kind of like deja vu, isn't it? It is, and uh, it's and it's unnecessary. Um, you know, we, we know that the uh, food supply, as it was in March, uh, April, May, June, July, was uh, secure. Uh, you know, everything that was needed was out there and available for everybody, and so everything settled down for a while. You know, I, I, in some respects, there's maybe, uh, you know, a natural instinct for people to, uh, to you know, something they can do to... Uh, to, to protect themselves in some manner or another. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm not sure it's a rational approach, but certainly uh, one that lots of people have, uh, have kind of taken hold of. And, and you know, the long lineups are, are, you know, quite frankly, unnecessary. So there's not going to be a toilet paper shortage. Production of all of the foods and goods that we need on a day-to-day basis is uh, fine. There's no, no issues there. It never has been, in fact. And uh, there's no need for people to be hoarding or you know, shopping to prepare for the next three or four months. We're not closing down. We're uh, we're going to be available. So grocery stores are still going to be open, and uh, there's no need for them to try and corner the market on toilet paper and paper towels. So, I'm uh, I'm hoping that people will uh, relax as 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 we get into the next phase of of you know the pandemic, and unfortunately the. Uh, the second wave is uh, probably a little bit more significant than we uh, might have anticipated, but, but 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 it was anticipated nonetheless. That everybody needs to uh, you know get back to understanding why we're uh, we're you know shutting things down or, or restricting things, understanding what we're trying to protect, which is life and the healthcare system, and uh, and and being reasonable about making sure that you you leave enough for other people to uh, to purchase when you're at the grocery store. And let's face it, as we've talked about on the program, this is all based on numbers, and you know, the numbers are the, are the numbers. I mean, it's, it's got to be awfully frustrating, because I know you talk with Dr. Richardson on, on a consistent basis about this, Mr. Merritt, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, the the numbers in schools are, are, are not bad at all, uh, so that's not really a, a major source of concern. Uh, even bars and restaurants, and, and for the most part, commercial enterprises, you know, people seem to be obeying the rules and adhering to that and face masking. It's the it's the private gatherings that seem to be spiking the numbers right now. And, uh, I mean, you can't be everywhere. You can't be in everybody's backyard or rec room, can you? We can't, and uh, what we're trying to do is get people enough information to help them understand why it's important to do right now. Uh, you know, as, as you can, you know, see in 
other places in the world, United States, <clears throat> as an example, where, you know, things are virtually out of control, this thing can spiral out of control very quickly if we don't contain it. And so right now we're, uh, we're at a critical stage in the healthcare care system. Uh, Rob McIsaac was uh, with us the other day on our media advisory and said, you know what, I mean, we, we've got lots of people to look after for other reasons other than COVID. And COVID just adds a whole new layer on top of it. And they don't necessarily have the, the doctors and the nurses and the staff to be able to, uh, to house, you know, that many more COVID patients. And so we've got to keep the numbers down to be able to protect the healthcare system and at the same time protect individuals out there. What I don't understand for some people, and again, I'll say that the majority of the, uh, you know, people that I know and, and, and people that I bump into on occasion are doing the right thing and they're socially distancing and they're start, trying to stay within their own households. There are a number of people that aren't adhering to that and they are now the cause of the problem. So they, they travel not only in a social circle, but they go beyond that and, uh, you know, go to the restaurant or go to the grocery store and potentially infect other people, whether they realize they have the, 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 the virus or not. Uh, the potential for spread keeps amplifying, which is why we need to curtail a lot of these locations to, pr- to, to protect ourselves from people that aren't, you know, physically distancing and following the measures that, uh, that we're asking them to do. So the more that we can do that, the better we are, but we still need everyone to listen to these uh, th- this advice, this is uh, the you know the bubble that the bubble of ten which we you know enjoyed over the summertime. It was a it was an opportunity to come out of you know a, a, a very constrained uh, economy and a very constrained kind of a living arrangement. And in the summertime, we were allowed to go to a bubble of ten. And uh, you know I think people still think that that's in existence. It's not. Right now, we're we're suggesting that you do not go out that you stay within your own household as much as humanly possible, other than for emergency. So if you're, you need to go to work, of course, you need to get to work and you need to get back. But then, you know, don't, don't go out and socialize and, you know, join up at the restaurants or join up in, uh, in other locations where, uh, you know, potentially you can bump into others that continue to uh, you know, pro- promote the spread of this virus. That's kind of where we're at right now. The numbers are dire. Um, we're not in the black zone or the gray zone which is basically a complete shutdown of all the all the major facilities that we like to enjoy uh we're not there yet and if we can keep the numbers down we'll uh, we'll avoid that uh, hopefully but uh if the numbers continue to go up then uh, we're going to end up where peel toronto uh you know uh, brampton and mississauga is right now which is virtually a complete shutdown of all the things that we like to enjoy Mr. Mayor, in his uh, daily conferences last week, Premier Ford uh, suggested he was going to uh, allow the municipalities to have more of a hand in some of the decision-making process about how to enforce these sorts of things. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it seemed to be somewhat contradictory to what he was saying earlier in the week because, uh, you know, it's obviously the designation as to what color you are in the, on this system they've developed is, is, is not up to you. It's not up to the municipalities. At least I don't think it is. Anyway, he didn't say that it was. Uh, do you have any clarity here as to exactly what your responsibility is? Or I know they've already told you that you're probably going to have to do the policing at long-term care facilities. They just say you can do it better, which basically is downloading. And I, this is probably the worst time to do something like that. How, how concerned are you? you about the way that the, those responsibilities are being doled out yeah it, you know what i mean i know that uh, the, the province is uh, scrambling to get a handle on these issues as well but uh, you know i think the best approach is you know some really strong provincial direction and what what the premier has said and which i i don't disagree with is that you know the the lockdown measures and you know the the, the category that we're in which is red 
uh, were the four. So that's the minimum that you need to do. That's a re- regulation, a requirement of the province. So it's an order. Uh, if we want to do more, there's some latitude to be able to do that. So if, if we were to decide locally that it was in our interest, and I'm not suggesting this, but if it was in our, our interest to close gyms altogether or to close restaurants or, or you know, even potentially to, uh, to close schools, we could do that uh, if, if it didn't, didn't contravene with anything the province had, uh, had put up. Uh, you know, it's been it's been difficult and challenging because things are changing, you know, virtually almost day to day. So, you know, in the last couple of weeks, when we thought we were, you know, moving toward the orange category, all of a sudden uh, we we leap right into the red category because the numbers spike. And so, uh, if that uh, that continues to happen, we have to be flexible enough to adjust quickly. Uh, having said that, uh, that also means that the message keeps changing. And, you know, if you, if you look back to where we were back in, uh, you know, March of last year when we didn't know what the virus is all about, we didn't know what kind of spread capacity it had, we really were in the unknown category. Uh, you know, they, they were even saying at that point that masks weren't necessary because they, they really didn't know. They didn't understand what, uh, what the, the, the transmission rate was and, and how it was going to be spread in our community. We know a lot more today than, uh, than we did then. Uh, we have a, you know, better handle on the amount of, uh, protections that need to be put in place and masking and washing hands and all of those things are very, very important, social distancing. Uh, but we're also, you know, better prepared in the healthcare system, which has allowed us to take in more cases. Because if you, if you realize today, we're, we're seeing more cases now than we were actually seeing in the very beginning of the, uh, the pandemic crisis that uh, basically got us a complete shutdown. And that's because our healthcare system is prepared. They've got the proper protective equipment. They've got the, uh, the, the uh, facilities set up to handle a certain amount of, uh, of COVID cases. Uh, they don't necessarily right now have to shut down all the other surgeries that might be required. Although if the cases continue to rise, that's what's going to happen. So I, I, I get the confusion out there. I get that, uh, you know, there have been o- ongoing change. I just ask people to be patient. Uh, this, is a, this is going to be a work in progress all the way through. Uh, if you think it's complicated now, let's start thinking about what happens when a vaccine arrives and how that's going to get doled out and, and how anxious people are going to be to be the first in line to get it. And, uh, and there's got to be a, basically a categorization of where do you start with the, uh, the vaccination and, uh, and, and who are, who's going to be the last to get it, you know, probably for all the right reasons. So for folks that are healthy and young, uh, they're probably not going to be first in line for, for those that are older and, and especially people in the healthcare system. And God bless the people in the healthcare system. I mean, day in and day out, they're, they're at the front line, uh, basically getting stressed out on a day to day basis on, you know, the amount of cases they're having to take in. Um, they're doing an amazing job, but we have to help them help ourselves by keeping the, uh, the, the spread of this virus at a minimum. And so you know, what, uh, what we can do is be patient. Uh, I know that there's kind of an evolving, changing dynamic uh, virtually week to week. Uh, unfortunately, that, that seems to be necessary. Uh, but we have a floor that we can work from. So the, the, the local order is uh, that we can uh, have the gyms open, but there's a, a maximum of 10 people in any gym. Uh, we can have a restaurant open, but there's a maximum of 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors. Uh, that's kind of the, 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 the floor that we're working from. If the medical officer health thinks we need to do more, she potentially could. Are you concerned, though, that if the numbers rise, and I, I'm hoping they don't, but, I mean, we've already seen, as you mentioned, what happened in Peel and in, in the GTA, uh, 
that it seems to be when you go into quote-unquote shutdown mode, it seems to be the, the commercial businesses, the small businesses especially, that are most negatively impacted by this. And, and the, don't, the numbers don't seem to indicate that's where the problem is. Uh, yet that's where the province seems to be focusing what they're doing. And I know that uh, you just mentioned some of the other municipalities, uh, certainly Mayor Tory in Toronto, Mayor Brown in Brampton, and, uh, and mm-hmm. a number of other communities just saying, wait a second here, let's rethink this and, and, and not shut down the economy. Uh, you know, we're heading into the Christmas season, and this is where these retailers expect to make at least a little bit of money this year. Yes, that's true, Bill. I mean, uh, but, but it, you know, in, 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 on the face of the, the spread of, a, of this virus, which uh, can spiral out of control, I think, when, you know, you're, you're left with very few options in terms of how you control this thing. So um, I, I don't have an easy answer on, on you know, what, what we're going to do with businesses uh, they they right now they're they're as open as they can be in in hamilton uh, i think in in toronto peel brampton it's virtually the uh, the restaurants and the gyms that they focused in on um i i don't think a complete shutdown of the economy is uh, is, is absolutely necessary like like we did back in march because we're much but much better prepared right now but uh, but the you know the caseload and the potential of spread you know as that continues to rise you have to you have to have some impact somewhere and so if uh, if, if if the only way that you can do that is to stop people from congregating in stores in gyms uh, in in uh, you know retail spaces in malls uh, which is where people tend to go uh, you know for for their recreation and their enjoyment aside from being at home. Then uh, that's something you have to focus on. Can we can we monitor and police, you know, every household uh, in in our municipalities? Uh, virtually impossible. All we can do is appeal to people's uh, good sense that there's a need here to uh, to not interact with other families and stay within your own household to avoid the spread of this disease. That's all we can do at this point. We can tell people why it's important. We can tell tell them what's happening in our healthcare system. Uh, we can tell them what the numbers are and what the potential of spread is. Um, we can limit some of the access to some of the things that they enjoy by either provincial orders or local uh, regulations. But we can't force people on a day-to-day basis in their own household to stay within their own household. That's just an unpoliceable scenario. What we can do on occasion is is catch people that are having uh, out-of-control gatherings that uh, you know we get a phone call about or or you know they happen to notice that and we. We have ticketing and enforcement that's happening on a much more aggressive basis. But, you know, if you think about the population and how many households there are, you know, there's some 270,000 homes in the, in the city of Hamilton. How do, you, how do you manage that? The only way you can do that is by sharing as much information as you can to let people understand why it's important to do and, and why their participation in this is critical. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, Mr. Mayor, will uh, stay in touch. I know we'll touch base later on this week, and hopefully the uh, the numbers will uh, give us a much different story. Thanks so much for this this morning. Thank you, Bill. Talk to you soon. You betcha. Stay well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In just a few minutes, uh, we're going to uh, have part one of our series, Care Gone Wrong, Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes. This is a 10-part series that uh, Global News has put together uh, to try to underscore the uh, severity and the crisis mode, I think, that many of long-term care facilities are in here in uh, Ontario. And we look forward to those reports from uh, Global News' uh, Jason Chapman in just a couple of minutes. A couple of stories over the weekend uh, about this that I, I think really magnify the problem here for us. And, and it's not as if we haven't talked about this. I mean, we talked 
constantly about you know the 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 problems that are going on and i know there was one commission that the province uh, put together there was another independent commission about the problems and this was all after the first wave uh yet many of the problems that we talked about seven eight months ago still exist as a matter of fact in many cases it's worse uh maybe the classic example of that was this past weekend uh the story that i saw on the news about a 90 year old resident of one of these facilities that has now opted for assisted death instead of going through another round of COVID-19 protocols in, the, in the, the home in which he is resident right now. That, that tells you just how the residents are feeling about what's going on. I want to bring Natalie Mira into the conversation. Natalie, of course, is the Executive Director for the Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for having me. This is a tragic story. I, I, I don't want to focus just on this gentleman, but it, I think I think this, it tells us right now just just how depressed, how sad, and and how dangerous dangerous this these facilities are right now. That a resident would actually opt for assisted death as opposed to going through the long term care process again. It's heartbreaking. It's really hard to hear and hard to experience um, for everyone, for the families, for the residents. Um, for the staff as well. It really is a terrible situation. Why, why is it not getting better? It's not as if the, the, the governments don't understand what's going on. I really think that the issue, well, I mean, this is one big problem is that the community spread of COVID-19 is so high that there's no way to keep it out of the homes. Staff have to go in, families are going in, and they and as they need to, I mean, witness the residents talking about that they'd rather die than be isolated for another, you know, three, four, five, six months um, with no human contact and inadequate care and all of the horrible things that have been going on. Um, but, the, but, you know, when there's big community spread like there is right now of COVID-19, then it makes its way into the homes. Now, it is possible, and some homes have uh, managed to stop it at one or two or less than five people, not to discount those people, but a number of them have not. And the re- when you drill down in those homes, like right now there's 100 homes in outbreak in Ontario. Of those, 34 include more than 10. 13 include more than 50 um, residents and staff infected. 12 include more than 99 residents and staff infected. And 4 include more than 150 residents and staff infected. And when you dig down into those homes where you see the spread, you see they're testing too late, they're delaying the testing, testing results are delayed, you see that staff don't have appropriate PPE, including N95 masks available to them because the operators are um, rationing them um, uh, or making it more difficult for the staff to get them. You see that the residents are not cohorted or segregated. As soon as they develop symptoms, they're you know, ending up in rooms, shared rooms for multiple days with, you know, another infected resident until, you know, second resident, third, fourth resident get COVID-19. You know, just terrible lapses in infection control, far too late of a response from the province uh, and public health authorities to take interventions to, you know, to, to provide people with care. Staffing, you know, is woefully inadequate, has been for years, but it has crumbled in a number of the homes, especially the ones with the outbreak. So the same litany of terrible things that we saw in the first wave are happening in a number of homes in the second wave and the interventions from government are too 
are not adequate. There are too many of them are voluntary. They're not holding these homes to account, uh, and they're not moving in quickly enough to stop the spread. And, of course, the late testing and so on is because the province completely failed in the summer to plan for the fall reopening of schools and ramp-up capacity. It's not as if they didn't know. I mean, we were all told there was going to be a second wave. As a matter of fact, we were all told that it may be as bad or worse. Well, it's it's turned out to be worse. But I want to ask you about that staffing, okay? Uh, this is a discussion you and I had back in the springtime, and we, we talked about the the pressure that's on staff now to try to look after these people in these facilities where it's overcrowded and, and you know, the virus is spreading so rapidly. Uh the, the government's response to that is essentially seemed to be a recruitment drive to get more people into the industry, and they're going to try to do that, although they're suggesting it, it's probably not even going to show much in the way of benefit for another year to half to two years. Uh, I don't know that it's going to be that effective, Natalie, because what I'm hearing now is an awful lot of people are leaving that industry because of the working conditions and the poor pay. So even if they hire X number of people, it may just be a zero-sum game. You may just replace maybe some or most of the people that have left, but that doesn't improve the situation situation at all yeah it's worse it is worse than it's ever been it's the worst i've ever seen and i've been doing this for you know 25 years um the one of the unions is um is reporting that according to their um surveying of their staff they've lost 30 percent of staff from the first wave that um that corroborates our staffing survey that we did in July that found that um, the majority of the homes uh, had worse staffing shortages um, at that point than they'd had going into the pandemic, and we know that they were short-staffed going in. So, yeah, no, the staffing is worse, but uh, I don't uh, buy the government's account that they can't do anything more quickly. In Quebec, June 1st, the Quebec government launched a recruitment drive you know, led by the government with the full weight of government behind it to recruit 10,000 PSWs for long-term care homes. And they did. They got 67,000 applicants for 10,000 positions. They um, trained them. They paid them $21 an hour for training, $26 an hour to be PSWs in the home. They In the homes, sorry, they did the training over three months. They deployed them into the homes this fall. And they have, you know, they've put a small army of PSWs into the homes to deal with critical staffing shortages. Ontario's government had the opportunity and the ability to do, and the money, to do exactly the same thing and has done nothing substantive. In fact, what they announced a few weeks ago was that they would bring in a minimum care standard by 2024-25. So I just want to say the average life expectancy for a person in long-term care is you know, one and a half to two years. Everyone who's currently in the homes by that, you know, many of the residents will never live to see that staffing improvement if it ever were to happen. We cannot believe that the, this that our government in this province has not acted to address the staffing shortages, even as people are starving, as they're dying in terrible conditions in the homes. That is not an exaggeration. That is what's happening. Uh, and it's it's a travesty. It is. Uh, Natalie, uh, we've got to break it off at this point, but I want to stay in touch with you, and hopefully we're going to get some update on these numbers in the next couple of days, and we'll certainly uh, like to get your input on it. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. I'm sorry. It's bad news.
I know it is terrible news. It's very frustrating to see that uh, there's not a whole lot of action going on here. Natalie Mayer, of course, Executive Director for the Ontario Health Coalition. Glad you're with us today. The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. As this uh, COVID-19 pandemic continues, we are now turning our attention for the next couple of weeks to the holes the virus has exposed in our long-term care homes. Now, today, what's happened this past spring? How did COVID-19 kill more than 2,000 nursing home residents? Global News' Jason Chapman is here with part one of Care Gone Wrong, Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes. There is growing concern tonight for some of our most vulnerable. We are seeing outbreaks at numerous long-term care homes in Ontario. Most alarming is in Bob Cajun, where an outbreak is being described as a war zone. At Pinecrest Nursing Home, nine residents have died and at least 24 staff have contracted the virus. We were so afraid of what was going to happen and I would say our, our worst nightmare and possibly beyond that um, came true. Haunting words early in the pandemic from the Pinecrest Nursing Home's medical director. By early April, almost half of the home's 64 residents had died. The tragedy exposed a gross oversight in Ontario's response to COVID-19. We were seeing things happen in Bergamo, Italy, where there was hospital systems being overrun, uh, not enough ventilators. That really framed the Canadian response, this lopsided response, and said, this is how many ventilators we need. This is why we need to clear out our hospitals. This is what we need to do to get ready. But we forgot about this other huge sector in in our society and our healthcare system called the long-term care sector, where in Ontario, over 70,000 people live. Nathan Stahl is a geriatrician at Mount Sinai Hospital. He spent much of the year studying how during the first wave, Eight out of every 10 COVID-19 deaths in Canada were connected to long-term care homes. You're taking the frailest adults, they live in congregate settings, and the settings they live in are often outdated and crowded. And then you're introducing a highly transmissible virus that is highly lethal. And that's in the setting of this lopsided response where all the preparedness and resources have been shunted to acute and critical care. So it was a perfect storm for just a disaster. And it wasn't until the middle of April that the province said, oh my God, um, let's start redirecting some of these resources to long-term care homes and let's try and address what was an out-of-control humanitarian crisis. March seems like it was yesterday, but also a lifetime ago. Each of us was trying to navigate our new normal as pandemic lockdowns took hold. We heard about hundreds dying in nursing homes, but what actually went wrong? Devorah Greenspawn explains how her world turned upside down. My whole life changed. I was like a bird with its wings cut. Before the pandemic, I was going to take a lecture series at U of T. The middle of March, all that changed. I was, well, locked in quotation marks in my room. Didn't see anybody except people wearing the long yellow gowns with masks, with shields, and their heads are covered. 
that's when I knew we were in trouble, when I saw people walking around my unit like that. Twelve residents died during the first wave in Devorah's home. She understands why lockdowns were put in place, but not why the restrictions stayed in place until the summer. It was a really horrifying experience. I think the one thing that kept me going was my family. When I would really feel like, oh, geez, I don't want to get up in the morning. Why do I want to get up in the morning? I have absolutely nothing to do. I may as well stay in bed with the covers over my head. And then I would think, my kids are not going to like that. They're going to be mad at their mother. <laughs> you got to get up and fight, mom. <laughs> and I think that really kept me going, you know. More than 2,000 seniors died in Ontario's nursing homes during the first wave. But how? With lockdowns in place, visitors weren't welcome in the homes. However, staff members came and went. And Dr. Nathan Stahl says those in charge failed to protect those employees. This is a workforce that's been under-recognized, underpaid, no full-time pay often. So they often live in the COVID hotspots in our cities and then are coming to work in these homes. Early on, they didn't have personal protective equipment. There's images of people wearing garbage bags to work. Orders to limit workers to one home, recognizing that they, that they could have contributed unknowingly to the spread, didn't come into effect until April 22nd uh, in our province. Then the lockdown dragged on for months and months. In Ontario, we don't know if this isolation directly contributed to any long-term care deaths, but... One of the things that turned my head, reports from French physicians, they actually named it the confinement syndrome. And they said the confinement syndrome is probably more deleterious than COVID-19 itself. Even in Ontario, we had a resident who died of malnutrition. There were residents, their cognitive impairment accelerated so much, they didn't recognize their loved ones when the lockdown ended. I want them to know about the loneliness. A lot of people are feeling hopeless and helpless. That's the voice of Carolyn Snow. She lives in a nursing home in Keswick. During the first wave, there wasn't a single case of COVID reported in her home. Still, a lockdown was imposed and all regular programming was canceled. Carolyn says the loss of connection to the outside world had major impacts. I consider myself a fortunate person because I can FaceTime my family, my children and grandchildren. Most of our residents can't. Many of the people who were ambulatory are now in wheelchairs. A lot of their health has declined because they haven't had any stimulation and that sort of thing. For those on the outside looking in, the springtime was equally heart-wrenching. Kathy Parks lost her father in the second week of April. Her dad, Paul, died in a Pickering nursing home. A lack of communication is what frustrates Kathy more than anything. I was stumbling in the dark. I think a lot of us were. I knew my father was ill. I knew something was wrong. Hadn't been able to see him for weeks because of the lockdown and uh, communication was non-existent. Kathy fought hard to get her dad out of the home. His health was going downhill quickly and he wasn't getting the care he needed. April 14th was the last day she got to see her dad alive through a second floor window. And I had this 
overwhelming feeling that my dad needed me. So that's a hard one. That's why I don't talk about it. <laughs> um, I could actually feel almost like his hand grabbing mine. Um, so I did actually get to below his window and he had his own phone. I knew at that point that he, things were really not okay because he was comatose and my dad was so full of life. And uh, yeah, that, that was the last time I got to see him and last time I got to talk to him. Paul Parks died a few days later. Tragically, Dr. Nathan Stahl says this isn't a unique story. Communication was terrible in March and April. And Dr. Stahl wants to know why more nursing home residents weren't transferred to hospital early in the pandemic. So there was this unofficial triage that happened at the time where residents were really just left to die in their homes. And stories from families, there are letters from homes that went out that basically convinced them that there was no benefit to sending their loved one to hospital. There was never any triage that officially happened, but it unofficially happened in this situation. In the coming weeks, we'll ask government officials if they in fact triaged our seniors. We'll find out if it's possible to put an iron curtain around our nursing homes. And we'll explore how we can rely less and less on these homes moving forward. It's all coming up in our special series, Care Gone Wrong, Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes. For Global News, I'm Jason Chapman. <sighs> Troubling stuff. Tomorrow, why are private companies running so many of Ontario's nursing homes? Who provides better care, these companies or the government? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. These last seven or eight days have uh, been great news uh, for those of us who are very concerned, which should be all of us, about COVID-19, uh, because we've got some great news about vaccines. Two announcements within a couple of days of each other, uh, and uh, both suggesting that they were way ahead of the planned schedule for the development and, of course, the ultimate release of the vaccine. As uh, Stephanie Ramos reports, it looks like distribution uh, could start pretty soon, but drag on until well into next year. It will still take months before enough doses are available for all Americans. Also, scientists fear convincing people to take it will be tough. A recent Gallup poll finding more than 40% of Americans are hesitant to take an FDA-approved vaccine, much of it having to do with the political context under which that vaccine was created. So that's the good news about those two vaccines, of course, Pfizer and Moderna. But now we find out that AstraZeneca, who's uh, also developing late-stage trials now for their vaccine, this is, of course, in conjunction with Oxford University, we've talked about this study before, has announced that they are up to 90% effective in preventing disease. This vaccine is one of several that uh, the Canadian government has pre-ordered. So what's going on, and what uh, what does this all mean for us that are waiting for a vaccine, ready to roll our sleeves up? Joining us to talk about this is Eric Arts, a professor of the Canadian Research Chair in HIV Pathogenesis and the Viral Control and the Chair and Professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University in London. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, great to have you with us on the program today. Um, no problem. I'm very happy to be on it, especially with good news coming through. It's a yeah. This is this is amazing. I mean, I, I you know I remember the conversations that we had back in the springtime during the first wave, and they talked about all the work that was going on and the number of companies that were striving to find a vaccine. But they cautioned us at the time: look, this could take two years, three years, or or not at all. We don't know. Uh, the rapidity with which they've moved on here is really amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's remarkable, and um, it really says that. When we have uh, something major to fight against, we can all get back 
together and really work hard to get what we need to achieve. And it's very impressive that they were able to do it in less than a year. Um, fortunately for us, this virus is a little easier to deal with in terms of uh, vaccine development than a lot of other viruses that circulate in the population. I was asking uh, one of your contemporaries about this a couple of weeks ago, and I said, how can they move that quickly? And he says, it's amazing what can happen when the government opens the paycheck and just and lets the money flow. That, that doesn't often happen with research, does it? No, it doesn't. And, you know, I was critical in the past because um, I argued that, you know, with the first SARS virus, uh, we, we knew that this potentially could jump back into humans at some later stage. And we could have actually been even further ahead had we continue to put money and funding into vaccine discovery back then. Uh, But, you know, and I really hope we learn our lesson this time around that we don't take our foot off the gas in vaccine development. Well, I hope the lesson has been learned here. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we had such a terrible scare with SARS, and uh, and there was a protocol established, as we call, not just for, you know, for for looking at vaccinations, but also for the treatment of the people that are affected by this. And uh, as time went on, we just seemed to pretty much forget about it. I mean, there was a playbook that we could have used, and uh, well, governments, and and I guess we all are probably guilty of that to some extent, Uh, but uh, there was a dedicated effort, maybe because it was such a global concern, uh, such an effort by so many different companies to try to get to where we are now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's remarkable when you put that amount of effort in and that amount of funding, and you get the best minds working on this, that you can manage very quickly to develop a bunch of vaccines. And, you know, the news from Moderna and AstraZeneca and Pfizer is great, but, you know, there are others that are coming on board that could be as effective and even easier to produce. Vaccines from Novavax and Sanofi um, look very good and promising as well, as well as one from Johnson & Johnson. So I think we're just going to keep hearing this good news and um, it's great, and it will provide access to the vaccine for everyone in the world, because it's another thing people have to realize is we're not going to get over this unless we vaccinate everyone in the world and people actually um, take the vaccine. Um, And for the most part, or not for the most part, I, I think almost without exception, these are highly safe vaccines that have been tested previously in, in humans with other diseases. Uh, The only exception would be the first two that were developed, but they're so simple, it's hard to believe there'll be a lot of toxicity or side effects. How do you get started on research on something like this? Obviously, you're dealing with the virus, and you've identified, uh, well, not just the COVID virus, but, of course, so many other uh, uh, viruses like this, uh, coronaviruses, that that variations, I guess, on the same theme. Uh, But they're all basically, I guess, working with the same basic tools here. I I, I mean, I know that uh, there's kind of a breakthrough with the Moderna thing, and it sounds as if the uh, the one that we heard about uh, from AstraZeneca is very similar, is that what they've done here is uh, combined uh, a special... A virus that causes COVID-19 with a spike protein, uh, which is very much like the virus itself. And, and what, are, what do they try to replicate it? Yeah. So the 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 vaccines that are being developed by um, by AstraZeneca, um, it uses um, a chimp um, a chimpanzee virus that causes like the common cold in basically chimpanzees, but have has no effect in in humans and 
So there's so many viruses we get infected with just about every day that have no impact on our health. Then these are really good, what we call vectors. So things that you can, you know, trick that virus into expressing and presenting um, things like the coronavirus spike protein and then say, hey, this is foreign and get your immune system to recognize it. So um, these are approaches that AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and the Russian vaccine have um, taken uh, and moving forward with. Uh, there are more classical ways of doing it, and that's what um, companies like Sanofi are working on. But, I mean, they all are working on the same basic principle of getting this surface protein of the virus called S protein, and, and finding a way to present it to the immune system. And, and it's been very effective. Now, I should caution people in some ways. It's like it is very effective for coronavirus, um, but just about every one of these approaches have been utilized for HIV, for example, and none of them have worked for HIV. Mm-hmm. So it's, we're very fortunate that this particular pandemic is caused by a virus that is pretty easy to combat with a vaccine. And we should be thankful for that, for sure. The work that you and so many others have been doing about a potential HIV vaccine, though, was that, was that relevant? Was that helpful in, in, in starting to look for, for some of the stuff that we've heard from so far with these three companies? Yeah, it, it's kind of funny and tragic at the same time. I, I mean, pretty well all of the vaccine platforms that these companies are utilizing have been used uh, for HIV and have largely failed for HIV as a vaccine. So as a consequence, um, most of these companies had these uh, tools in their toolbox. And and so it was pretty easy to rapidly adapt them for SARS-CoV-2. So it, it really made a big difference. And that's one of the reasons why we could accelerate as quickly as we could. Um, and, you know, there are, there are many, many that are under development, probably over a hundred that are at different stages. And um, it's not a surprise that the largest pharmaceutical companies have the resources to push us forward as quickly as they did. Here's a question that I'm getting from a lot of folks when we talk about vaccines. For a lot of our listeners, I'll get emails on following up, and I'm I sure I will about this one uh, now that this announcement has come out too, Professor. Uh, when they say it's 90% effective, uh, effective against what? I mean, COVID-19 seems to have manifested itself in so many different ways uh, in, in different people. Is it the respiratory problems that, it, that, that it's effective against? Is it some of the other uh, symptoms that we see? How, how do you quantify that and qualify that? Because we... At least, as far as I can see, anyway, don't have data on this yet. We simply have, in other words, a press release from the company, and that's great. Uh, but you know, folks like yourself, I'm sure, want to start crunching some numbers and seeing just what what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the challenges, and especially with the AstraZeneca uh, press release just um, today, is that it um, it's difficult to really determine, um, you know, how they're basing their efficacy on uh, until they publish um, a manuscript, a a peer-reviewed article. um, We take them at their word. Um, Now, granted, these companies are large publicly traded companies, so they're not not lying to us. Uh, That would be uh, incorrect, and Mm -hmm. 
very unlikely. Um, but, you know, it, it is important for us to see the data and, and understand. But when they say protection, it really means that uh, you have a group that didn't get the vaccine and they didn't know they didn't get the vaccine. And you have a group that did get the vaccine and didn't know they got the vaccine. So it's blinded to participants and to the people administering uh, these two different cocktails, vaccine or no vaccine. And, and, and then you study whether one group gets infected versus the other group, not knowing which is which. And then near the end of the trial, um, you get what we call unblinded. So you get to know who got what. And then it really is who was infected. And in all of these cases, it shows that the control group have many, many more people that get infected versus um, the vaccine group. So they're, they're very effective studies and, um, and they happen very rapidly. And the, the crazy part about it, again, is the level of infection in the parts of the world where they did these vaccine trials was so high that they could get the results relatively quickly. So uh, that's sad, but it also emphasizes our great need for these vaccines. When we uh, heard about the Pfizer announcement, it, uh, it was, hey, great news, great news, uh, except, uh, well, oh, by the way, did we tell you it has to be transported at minus 70 Celsius or it's going to go bad, which is a, can be a problematic. I know they're going to do dry ice, uh, you know, modules and, and get it across, but we were talking about transporting this all over the world, and we found out that uh, the one that we found out about here today, the AstraZeneca, uh, only needs to be stored at minus uh two to minus eight celsius uh, in other words a refrigerator uh, which i would think has got to be pretty good news for transportation to some of the remote areas that the vaccine is going to be needed yeah that that is uh good news and definitely i mean we were scrambling when we heard the announcement we started doing an inventory in london ontario asking how many minus 80 degree freezers we had <laughs> not a whole lot city. i would think what's that not a whole lot i would think no, not surprisingly, not a lot. And most of them are in research labs. Um, you know, it, it, it's still feasible. And so we, we shouldn't um, suggest that, you know, minus 80 storage is something that can't be obtained or attained. But um, it definitely makes it easier when you have cold, uh, a cold chain that's only at four degrees. But, um, you know, it, it, it makes a big difference. I, I think the other thing is the cost. Now, um, the cost for the AstraZeneca vaccine is considerably less than uh, Moderna's and Pfizer's, at least as I understand it. And, um, you know, the cost of a vaccine from Sanofi will probably be even less. And so you're going to see changes in the market. And the other thing is, is I like the Canadian government approach. You know, we, we bought probably five times more vaccine from all these companies than we actually need. And as they all come forward and get approved and are safe and effective, um, of course, we're not going to give the vaccine to five times more people <laughs> than uh, need it. But we are going to distribute that globally and provide that to other countries uh, that may not have the resources uh, to vaccinate their population as readily. So these types of things are important. And the, the, the important thing is, like, we have the ability to do 
a minus 80 degrees Celsius cold chain. Uh, whereas if you move to Africa, that's impossible. And so we, we have to think about these things in the future. And we are a small global community now. And if we don't vaccinate people in Africa, this thing will come back to bite us in the rear end if we don't watch it. Very quickly, I got a minute or so left here. You just brought something up about dosage, which I found fascinating about the uh, the AstraZeneca announcement today. Uh, two doses, and that seems to be consistent with all three that we've heard from so far. But they say the initial dose is really a half dose, and they say that's just if, if effective is not more effective than 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 two full doses in situations like that. That's an interesting twist. Yeah, it it um, it is very interesting. It, there's a there's a rational explanation for it, and um, you're uh, your listeners will probably fall asleep if I try to explain it. Um, but uh, it, it also says a lot to me about the, the Russian approach, which uh, many people have um, great consternation about Russian science. But um, I personally feel that they used a very smart approach. And um, what happens sometimes is when you, all these vaccines are provided in two doses. The first dose is what we call a prime. So it's like priming a pump. And in order to keep that pump going and the water flowing, you have to then boost it. And that gives you more longevity of the vaccine. Um, When sometimes you prime too much, um, you flood the system too quickly. And so the boost doesn't work as effectively. And that's what AstraZeneca faced is they prime too much. And, uh, and what you land up getting is um, in a second immune response that actually kills off the first immune response. So that can be problematic. And that, mm. I think, is one of the reasons why, you know, they saw low efficacy, you know, maybe less than 60 percent or around 60 percent uh, when they use that first high dose prime. So um, it, it is it is, you know, there are tricks that not tricks, but a lot of research that needs to go into these types of things. And you, you try things and some things work and some things don't. So I think AstraZeneca is now on the right path and they know how to administer it. And um, it, it's good news because anytime you can use less of a vaccine, it's probably better than more vaccine. Absolutely. Uh, great announcement. Always great to, to get your perspective on this, though, Professor, and put some context in this. Thank you so much for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. No problem. I love talking about good news. So <laughs> Let's do some more of that soon. Thanks again, Professor. All right. Bye then. Professor, Professor Eric Arts, of course, from Western University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.